Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be your host. First off, I want to say thank you for your support. We're both so happy to be able to create something that everyone else is enjoying. Um, and as we previously said, we like interacting and reading comments and feedback, and uh, want to share our social media contacts with you guys. On Twitter, we are at Beyond underscore Breakers. Instagram, Beyond the Breakers Podcast. Email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com, and we also have a Patreon. The Patreon is patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers, and money from that just goes back into making the podcast, web hosting, resources, uh, you know, we always want to keep the pod ad-free, and it always will be ad-free, and, uh, you know, if you enjoy the show and you want to toss us a buck or three, feel free. We appreciate it. With that stuff out of the way, I'll go ahead and bring in Tanner. Tanner, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Feeling good. Nice. How are things in Wisconsin? Uh, it's rainy, but that helps with the temperature for sure. Uh, it's been it's been nice. It's been an enjoyable few days, actually. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty nice here. It's pretty hot, but uh, it's been gloomy and rainy the last few days. So it's nice to have some nice weather. Mm-hmm. So uh, you kind of inspired me last week with uh, the uniqueness of the whalebacks and kind of I, the submarine esque, you know, body that they have. I do that. I'm a very inspiring individual. <laughs> So I thought that we would do something, uh, a first for the show. I thought we would talk about a submarine. All right. Not just any submarine. One of the, the largest submarine incidents in the naval history, in U.S. naval history, and also a nuclear submarine. So pretty interesting stuff. It's kind of new territory for us. But right. uh, with that, I think we'll go ahead and get into it. We are going to be talking about the USS Thresher. Have you heard of that before? Not before this. I had never heard okay. of this ship. Yeah, I had heard of it. I know a little bit about it, but you know, it's not something I didn't really know well until diving into this. But it was a pretty interesting story, and it has some pretty interesting like ramifications later on. So let's go ahead and dive in. Is that an intentional pun? Dive in. No, actually, that was not. That was unintentional. Well done. <laughs> Those are the best kind. <laughs> so the Thresher was commissioned August 3rd, 1961. So this is a fairly old vessel that we're talking about. Uh, it's built at the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And a little bit about the dimensions. She's 279 feet long, 32 feet wide, and when surfaced, had a draft of 26 feet. Although dealing with a draft of a submarine is sort of a, a weird number because it doesn't bit, really matter, I suppose. It's a bit odd, yeah. But I can um, see how it's important. Yeah, it would still be important going into port or something like that. Um, and she has a maximum test depth of 1,300 feet. I will go ahead and get this out of the way. That'll be important later. It's too deep. It's too deep. People shouldn't be that deep. <laughs> so she has a standard crew of 112 men, uh, 16 officers, 96 enlisted. So this is a big vessel. It's a lot of people to be stuffed, you know, into a metal tube underwater. Yeah. And like, and I know that submarines are larger than they seem. Like I've been on one at some point, I think in Manitowoc. The Cobia. I know they're bigger than they, they seem, but in my head, it's just like like 112 people just crammed into like one room. <laughs> in one room. <laughs> Everyone's just looking at each other. So let's talk about what the Thresher was built to do. She's built as an attack submarine. Basically, this is also referred to as a hunter killer. Her job is to go find and destroy Soviet submarines. It's not a very subtle per name. It's, it's very straightforward. Hunter killer. In particular, her job is to hunt down the large ballistic missile subs that could threaten the U.S. mainland. So she has a very specific job. She's designed to be fast and quiet and get in range and destroy larger missile submarines. 
And she is part of the class of submarines known as the Permit class. It was originally named the Thresher class of submarines. She was actually the lead vessel. But uh, as we talk about the story, you'll see why they ended up switching the name to a uh, different vessel to be the lead ship. All right. So as we said, to accomplish her mission, the Thresher is kind of a new design of a submarine. Um, she's fast and quiet. Previous to this, a lot of like, you know, World War II, like they're just submarines. You know what I mean? Like they, there's not like specific designs. You don't have ballistic missile subs, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This is beginning to get into like specialization of role. And again, her role is to be fast, silent, and get within striking distance. Uh, She was pretty much state-of-the-art when she was built. You know, she's built with cutting-edge technology. She's able to actually launch, like, anti-submarine missiles, anti-ship missiles. This is all fairly new stuff. This isn't, again, this isn't a World War II submarine with a deck gun and just a couple torpedoes. It's, It's beginning to look more like what we have today, the more modern subs. Most importantly, she's nuclear powered, which means she basically has unlimited range. She's only limited by her crew's needs, not needs for fuel, which when you're, you know, trying to run underwater for days to get into position to attack, that's pretty useful. Right. So upon her launch, the Thresher conducted sea trials in the Atlantic and the Caribbean. Over the next few months, she would actually participate in various training exercises. Um, This includes nuclear submarine exercise three in 1961. Nuclear Exercise 2 in 1962, and she also works with the development of the Subrock anti-submarine missile. So, you know, she's being used right away for a lot of training and a lot of uh, development. She's basically a testbed for a lot of ideas. Mm -hmm. So, again, this is, you know, keep in mind that this is like cutting-edge technology as we tell this story. This isn't like an old ship or, you know, something that's been grandfathered in. This is something that's like state-of-the-art and brand new. Right. Thresher would ultimately end up back at the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in July of 1962. And this is pretty normal for a lead vessel. She's being brought in to be evaluated, to be overhauled, to make alterations. Again, with new technology, you're kind of finding the problems as you go. It's not unusual that she would have been back in the shipyard. Mm -hmm. Um, These repairs would last for about nine months. And she's ultimately recertified. And she's able to be released on April 8th, 1963. And at that point, she's going to go conduct more training. That brings us kind of to the uh, the meat of our story, where we'll spend a little time talking about what happens with the Thresher. So the Thresher leaves Kittery, Maine on April 9th, 1963. She's under the command of Lieutenant Commander John Wesley Harvey. I wasn't able to find a lot of information about him, but one would have to assume if he's in charge of a brand new state-of-the-art uh, submarine He's a man who's done some things. They're not just handing the keys to someone who doesn't know what they're doing. He's probably got some medals on his chest somewhere. Yeah, yeah. He's he's played this game a few times. Um, she's bound for an area around 220 miles east of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, to conduct post-overhaul dive trials. So, obviously, she's been laid up for nine months. You want to test it. You want to make sure that all the repairs and things that you've done are successful. Mm-hmm. It's worth noting, too, that she has additional crew on board. She has civilian contractors. And that's also normal in this case. You know, obviously the Navy doesn't actually maintain all the systems on the ship. You've got outside private companies doing some work. So Mm -hmm. there's also private uh, contractor personnel on board the ship. Oh, good. Yeah, not not good. (laughs) Ultimately not good, at least. So um, there's extensive testing to be done just to make sure that those nine months of work are successful. And she's actually going to be accompanied on this trip by a submarine rescue ship by the name of Skylark. 
So obviously, if you're testing a bunch of stuff to make sure that it works, you want to have other resources at hand. You don't just want the vessel out there by itself. So they have a support ship out there um, kind of working in tandem. A little bit about the Skylark. She's a Penguin-class submarine rescue ship. So her basic role is to provide support to the submarine while it's doing testing. And also, it's a lifeline if something goes wrong. You've got experienced divers on board. You've got rescue personnel on board. Uh, it's kind of the best case scenario that you've got a rescue ship immediately on scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also equipped with advanced detection and salvage equipment that could res- like assist in any search and rescue operation. So clearly, there's some thought put into this. Right. They're not just out there, you know, alone. On the afternoon of April 9th, Thresher conducts her first test dive. Everything's normal. Everything's working great. Uh, no major issues. Obviously, you're going to have a few small hiccups here and there anytime you do something like that, but nothing notable. At that point, she surfaced, and then she conducts another dive to half of her test depth. That would have been around 650 feet. So she's, you know, that's a, that's a long ways to be underwater. 600, that's, you start thinking about that. That's about 600 600- 46 more feet than I would like to be submerged in water. (laughs) Um, So she remains submerged throughout the night, but she establishes contact with the Skylark at 630 that morning, which would have been April 10th. At that point, she's ready to commence deep dive testing. So she's going to push to the limits of her test depth. And it's important to test these things. I mean, you want to make sure that it can perform within the parameters it's expected to perform in. Uh, because you know, you don't know when you're on a mission, if that may be something you're asked to do or something that you need to do. So you obviously under, under a controlled setting, want to check those things out. So the way that this works, and I thought this was really interesting because I didn't really think about it. The thresher dives directly under the Skylark, like they're positioned to be on top of each other. And the thresher makes a circular dive pattern. And they actually stop every 100 feet to check her systems. So this isn't just like a dive down to 1,300 feet and, you know, it's over. This is a very measured and metered process that you're going through to make sure that everything's going according to plan. Right. Uh, It's also important that because she's directly under the Skylark, they're able to maintain contact throughout. So it's not like this isn't something that Thresher is trying to be sneaky. You're not trying to hide. You want to be seen. You want to be heard. You just want to test the systems to make sure that they work. So, I mean, do they have like actual voice radio contact? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure how it worked, but they were able to have voice contact uh, through some sort of a system. I don't know if it was like a radio, uh, like a radio telephone or, or something, but they are able to communicate with each other. Okay. I thought I had seen something about like a radio, like a cable or something, but I, I don't know if that was... I didn't want to get too mired into the details, but uh, for our purposes, they can talk to each other. Okay. At least in theory, they can talk to each right. other. So, as Thresher neared her test step, the Skylark receives a garbled transmission. So, that kind of what we were just talking about. Like, they can communicate, but it may not always be, you know, crystal clear. So, at 9.13, the Thresher reports minor difficulties have positive up angle attempting to blow. So, let's talk about what that means. Obviously, they're saying minor difficulties. They have a problem of some sort. But it it doesn't sound like they're extremely worried, but they want to get to the surface. Um, Have positive up angle means that they're trim. They're positioning themselves to, it's almost like flying. It's like adjusting the, you know, the flaps and and all that stuff on an airplane. They're setting themselves up to propel themselves up. And then attempting to blow, they're going to help that by blowing their ballast tanks. They want to get to the surface uh, quickly. And by blowing your ballast tanks, you basically become more buoyant. So, it'll, you know, when you see those classic pictures of like a submarine breaching the surface or something, that's what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. 
Now, normally what you want to do is get to like a periscope depth and then do that. So you're only popping up like 60 feet. They're attempting to do this from like 1300 feet. Mm -hmm. So clearly they want to get there in a hurry. You're not going to be able to control that. But if you need to get to the surface because you have a problem, that's, that's the least of your concern. Right. One thing I did want to point out, because I was reading through the notes and, and the sources and stuff, and I saw this term positive up angle, just wanted to verify what that meant. If you Google that phrase, positive up angle submarine, almost every result is is from the thresher. Um, it, it sort of <laughs> highlighted like how big of a deal this story is and really the impact that it had, because almost everything you find just Googling this phrase that could in theory apply to any submarine is almost always associated with the thresher. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it comes directly from the transcript, so that would make sense. Mm -hmm. All right, so one minute later, the Skylark acknowledged what uh, the Thresher had said, and they await more updates. They don't hear anything else, so actually they respond after waiting a few seconds. They send them a message that says, no contacts in the area. And this is actually meant to kind of reassure the Thresher that she can do an emergency surface procedure without fear of striking another vessel. Obviously, mm -hmm. that's always a concern, especially if you were in a busy area. If you're coming up uncontrolled, you don't know what you're surfacing into. Mm -hmm. But Skylark wanted to make sure that they were aware that there's no other traffic and they can do that, whatever they need to do to get to the surface. If only Norwegian freighters were so careful. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, after another minute passes, Skylark asks Thresher about her intentions. So what you're seeing here is, you know, they heard from Thresher and now there's these minutes going by and clearly like the crew of the Skylark's getting nervous. They're, they're the only ones talking. So that has to be a little unnerving. But uh, Skylark asked Thresher about her intentions and they let them know my course is 270 degrees interrogative range and bearing from you. So they're even letting them know where they're at. So if there's any hesitation now from Thresher, like everyone's on the same page, blow your ballast tanks and get to the surface. I had to read this quote several times before I understood what it meant. I was Googling the term interrogative range. I was like, what is this? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, they're asking a question. And they're saying, yeah. I'm asking a question, range and bearing from you. Yep. They're, they're, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird phrasing, yeah. but it kind of makes sense that you have like a system like that where when you're dealing with stressful things or high, mm -hmm. you know, high stress environments, like you have a system of talking that doesn't involve inflection. Right. In exactly. Voice. That makes sense. Uh, they, there's no question that a question is being asked. So unfortunately there's no response from the thresher. At that point, Lieutenant commander Hecker of the Skylark, he actually sends his own message. He kind of takes over and he actually directly asks the thresher, are you in control? Which has to be, that has to be a pretty, heavy message to send that you're even to that point of asking a question like that. It, it can't be a good feeling. It seems like too human of a question to be used in this situation. Like we just talked about with this kind of more standardized system of, of discussion. It seems like a very sort of desperate question. Right. So at 916, this is followed. This is responded to with a distorted message. It includes the phrase 900 in, and I've seen 900 North also. And I don't know if it's actually in or if the in was an abbreviation for north in the actual transcripts. Mm -hmm. Point is, the, the meaning of the message is not really known. We don't actually know what they're trying to tell us. It's possible that the sub's reporting its depth and that the in is an answer to the question, are you in control? Mm. So it would be, you know, 900 meters and negative. We're not in control. Okay. But we don't actually know what they meant because it is so garbled and distorted. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's no context really for what they're saying. At 9.17, a final transmission is received with a partially recognized phrase, exceeding test depth. 
That's not a good phrase. No? We'll discuss that more in a minute. There were no further communications between Thresher and Skylark after that point. At 9.18, a sonar signature consistent with a submarine breaking apart is detected by the Skylark. And at that point, it's apparent that there's a serious incident. There's no question that it, you know, it's not a communications issue. There, there's something bad has happened for sure. This gave me flashbacks to El Faro, where once the ship has lost contact and they don't know where it is, one of the things that the Coast Guard's uh, sonar picked up was something that sounded a lot like a big ship hitting the ocean floor. Um, right. And that's obviously what that was. Uh, yeah, that has to be a pretty haunting thing to be that, that sonar technician and be hearing that and knowing what that implies, like mm-hmm. what's going on. Uh, so at 920, Skylark continues to attempt to contact Thresher. They call for a radio check. They call for smoke bombs or any other indication of the boat's condition. Basically, they want some sort of affirmation that that the Thresher is able to communicate. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we know that that doesn't happen. I would have to imagine the crew of the Skylark does, it doesn't expect that it's going to happen, but they, you know, they have to follow through and, and do their jobs and attempt mm-hmm. to uh, rescue or you know, make contact. At 11.04, so they've you know, tried for almost two hours to make contact, Skylark alerts the Atlantic Submarine Command of the potential loss of the Thresher. Uh, due to some technical issues, this message is not actually received until 12.45. So you can see there's quite a delay here um, in getting that information out. Not that it necessarily matters in a search and rescue sort of way. It's pretty safe to say that once they heard the sound of a submarine breaking up, this this event was over. Right, really and I mean, it, else it seems like especially with the with the protocol of having the Skylark right there, they're they're essentially doing everything they can to be on scene if something goes bad. But at this point, something has happened that is not really fixable. Yeah, I think we mentioned it last week. We were talking about the whalebacks a little bit, about like with submarines and everything. Submarine disasters are infrequent, but when they happen, they mm-hmm. tend to be bad. They tend to have an extremely high fatality rate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll kind of talk about that more and uh, why that might be. Although it's pretty obvious that once you hit a, a crush depth and your vessel implodes, there's not a lot that yeah. you can do. It's just a very sudden thing. It's more of a plane crash, honestly. It's, it's more like that. Mm-hmm. Probably a good analogy. So the, on that afternoon, 15 Navy ships are en route to search the scene and conduct search and rescue operations. In the early evening, the families of those on board the Thresher were notified that the vessel is missing, but an active search is underway. So, you know, the, the Navy, I'm sure at this point the Navy knows that there aren't, they're not going to be able to rescue anyone. But they kind of pitch it to the families that it's more of a search and rescue than a, a recovery operation. It's understandable that you would do that, but also it has to be difficult. It's, it's a difficult PR situation to be in. Right. Uh, they did make a note. I saw that uh, the, the commander of the vessel, his wife was the first one notified. And it sounds like she actually assisted in some of the notifications. Kind of brought back um, like the memories of like, we were soldiers. Remember the scenes in there? Yeah. Yeah, it kind of sure. had that vibe. I sound, it sounds like she uh, assisted, mm-hmm. kind of notifying families and and kind of occupied that role, which that would have to be really hard to do. <laughs> You've yeah. lost someone too, but you're still you know kind of being a leader. That mm-hmm. would be difficult. So on the morning of April 11th, the search and rescue operation is halted. Chief of Naval Operations Admiral George Anderson announced to the press that the submarine was lost with all hands. And President Kennedy responded by ordering flags be flown at half-staff from April 12th to April 15th. So, pretty quickly, they changed their tune and say that this isn't a, this isn't a rescue operation, this is recovery. Because it is, it, it's pretty obvious that 
you're not going to rescue anyone. Yeah, I would think at that point to to anyone, civilian or otherwise, like it would be pretty clear that this is well. And just think about how badly the Navy doesn't want to talk about this, though. You just lost a nuclear powered submarine, mm-hmm. and it's brand new. I mean, that would be that would be crazy nowadays. It would be like losing a you know a brand new aircraft carrier today that's state of the art. Like it, you know, this is an embarrassing thing for the Navy. It is, and the but, fact that like at the time. I don't know what public level of knowledge or even concern about this type of thing was, but like we had a much, I'd say probably lower general knowledge about nuclear power and the dangers associated with it. Um, Right. So the idea of losing one of these things, like what, what happens next? Right. Right. So the mission quickly transitioned to search and recovery. Uh, Regular U S Navy vessels were supplemented by the Naval research laboratory And if you think about it, these vessels are used to charting the ocean. They're doing research at deep level, like, you know, deep water levels. Regular U.S. Navy vessels are designed to find and destroy a submarine, not (laughs) locate a shipwreck on the bottom of the ocean. Right. So they're getting help from more academic sources. This includes the research vessel Rockville. And she actually has something called an advanced trainable sonar. Uh, I didn't really look into that too much, but it definitely sounds like it's some cutting-edge sonar technology that kind of helped them and assisted them. Other vessels use deep-water camera systems, while others use traditional sonar and, you know, searched in a grid pattern. You know, it's crazy to think how hard it is to find this thing when you had a vessel on scene. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like this happened in a vacuum and no one knows where it is. The Skylark has a pretty good idea of where this happens. And they still can't find it right away. Yeah, I mean, we talked last week about uh, the sinking of the city of Everett and how they were able to communicate their uh, their location. And ships arrive on scene pretty quick and can't find a trace of this thing here. Like you said, we've got a ship literally on top of this thing. Yeah, and we still can't find it right away. So ultimately, Naval Research Laboratory uh, vessels and their deep tow camera systems are able to find some debris that's confirmed to be from the Thresher. However, they don't find like the main hull or anything like that. They're just finding random bits of debris. Once debris was confirmed to be that of the Thresher, uh, a deep diving submersible, the Triste, was requested at the scene. So, interesting thing with the Triste, it's actually famous for something else. It's notable for its dives on Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench. It actually set some records doing that. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it would dive on the wreck from June 24th to the 30th. And she would compete, complete a second set of dives in August and early September of 1963. In 1964, a search was conducted by the U.S. Inez Mizar. And this also included the Triste II, which was a successor to the original submersible. Uh, they set out on June 25th and located the remains of the Thresher's hull by June 27th. They ended up seeing that she lays in about 8,400 feet of water, and she's broken up into five major sections. Debris was scattered over a 33-acre area of the seabed, and by July, almost all of the vessel had been photographed. So, ultimately, by 1964, we know where this vessel is. 8,400 feet. That's that's pretty deep. Yeah, that is uh, pretty deep. I mean, honestly, though, compared to, like, the research that the Triste had done in the Marianas Trench, though, not that deep. Like, it's it's just crazy that's true. Yeah. how deep part of the oceans are. But even still, 8,400 feet is an alien world. Like mm-hmm. That is not something humans are designed to be in. Right. All right. So, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the thing we like to talk about on here. What caused the Thresher to sink? The most probable cause of the loss of the Thresher is due to the failure of saltwater piping joint systems. 
Uh, I know you did a little extra research on this. I'll let you talk about it in a second. But uh, the main point is that these joints were silver brazed rather than welded. And did you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I know very little about metallurgy or metal work or any of that. Um, but I did some quick reading just to kind of get a general idea of what really is the difference between brazing and welding. Anyone listening who can give us a more in-depth or probably a better explanation, feel free to message us um, and we'll relay that out. But the best I could kind of get here is that brazing involves uh, you know, joining two pieces of metal with a sort of filler material in between. So say you have two things that need to be joined. Uh, you're filling that gap with a heated material that adheres to both of them and joins them you know, into this joint. Whereas with welding, you're putting two pieces together of the same material and joining them under heat. So they're kind of fusing into one. That's kind of the, the quick, probably not very good explanation that I was able to find. <laughs> but it does highlight the big difference. Um, I, I guess for me, right. what it reminds me of is like with uh, bricks and mortar. Uh, when you are making a wall, not that this is something I do frequently, and you're using bricks and mortar, the mortar fills the gap between the bricks and holds them together. You're not fusing the bricks into one large brick. Uh, you're just sticking them together. Uh, right. And that's kind of what we yeah. have here from my understanding. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So basically, it sounds like the silver brazing has a purpose, but it may not be as strong as a welding. You're not fusing it together. Oh, and that's the other thing I learned in my investigation is that while it seems like welding is preferable in terms of strength for most cases, brazing does seem to be preferred if you're joining two different types of metal because the weld, I don't guess, would work as well. Whereas this, because you're not fusing them together, <laughs> seems to be a stronger join for those two different types. Interesting. So... What happens is this joint failure allows high pressure water to spray from a broken pipe. And it's theorized that this may have shorted out various electrical panels. It's also noted that in some of the transcripts that with the Skylark, there's a sound consistent with high pressure steam being released in the background. Hmm. So clearly something's going on because of these electrical issues caused by the water. This could have resulted in a shutdown or scram of the reactor. Obviously you don't want, a nuclear reactor being stressed. That's bad. You don't want it to, you know, basically melt down. Yeah. You want to so keep designed- it, you want to keep it very calm and cool <laughs> and collect. So basically it's designed to have like a circuit breaker almost that if it, you know, if they think that there's going to be a problem, it shuts itself down. Mm-hmm. This causes a loss of propulsion. That's never good. As we've established, losing propulsion is bad. It's even worse when you're already underwater. This may have resulted in her not being able to actually surface in the normal way, like we were talking about, like angling her, you know, dive plane and everything and being able to surface under power because she had no power. Mm -hmm. Um, This meant that she would have had to have done an emergency surface, as we discussed. And even as they kind of are implying, they were attempting to blow ballast. And like we say in a lot of these, it's never one thing. Mm -hmm. It's never one problem. And we kind of see that in what I'm about to discuss. The inability of her to blow her ballast tanks was most likely due to excessive moisture in the sub's high-pressure air flask. Due to the extreme cold of being near test depth, this excessive moisture would have been able to freeze in the airlines, and the air would not have been able to pass through the valves. This theory is actually able to be reproduced on the Tenosa, which is a sister ship of the Thresher in a dockside test. So they can confirm that this is a, a thing that can happen. And actually, in a weird way, I deal with something similar at work sometimes. Um, I've said before on here, I work in the trucking industry, 
And although I don't actually work like on trucks or in the field necessarily, I'm aware of some of the issues. And what we have is in the winter time, uh, trucks run on air brakes all the time. And in the winter, if you get a lot of moisture building up in the airlines, it can crystallize and freeze. And then you have ice in your airlines ah. and all your brakes lock up. Hmm. So it's kind of a similar process that that's why you have, you know, systems that are, you have like air dryers and things to keep the air in the lines dry. Or, you know, even with a truck, you might drop a little bit of alcohol in the line and that, that'll, you know, free those ice chunks out. Hmm. It sounds to me like something similar is happening in the ballast tanks that due to the extreme cold and the, the damp air in there, it's able to freeze and crystallize. An and that blocked it from, fu uh, from functioning. It's an interesting parallel I hadn't thought of. Yeah. It was nice to um, kind of understand some of the technical stuff in a practical way that I deal with. What's the collapse depth on one of your trailers? <laughs> Not 1300 feet. <laughs> so it's believed that the loss of propulsion and the inability to surface ultimately led to the vessel surpassing her test depth and imploding. So basically you just don't have any control. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not able to, to do the things you want to do. And that's bad when you're already at your test depth. Initially, it's thought to have occurred around 1300 to 2000 feet. That is the implosion. But later acoustical analysis in 2013 points to a depth of 2395 feet. That makes sense because obviously you're going to say your test depth is 1300 feet. You don't want to push it further than that. You want to give yourself a little cushion, mm -hmm. you know, but, uh, the system may, may be able to withstand more, at least for a little bit. And it, it appears that right around 2,400 feet is where the uh, vessel actually imploded. Right. You're not going to set the test depth at 1,300 if the submarine will collapse at 1,400. Like, Yeah, like you, you don't want to go to 1,301 and have, yeah. have the vessel breaking apart. So we're at about twice the listed depth, basically, here. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let's kind of conclude. Let's give some concluding thoughts here. Uh, most of the records regarding the inquiry into the Thresher are still classified. In 1998, the Navy began to declassify them, but ultimately changed course. Uh, a FOIA request by military historian and former submarine commander James Bryant was upheld in federal court in 2020, and the Navy has begun releasing documents since May of that year. Uh, James Bryant's interesting because he was actually a commander of three Thresher class submarines. So I can imagine if he could get a hold of some of those technical uh, reports and information, he would probably have some thoughts on those mm -hmm. since he has a lot of practical knowledge. It's an interesting side note about the history of the Thresher wreck site that uh, Dr. Robert Ballard is involved. Do you know who that is? Do you know the name? The Titanic guy. Yeah, the Titanic guy. Uh, yeah, he, he's famous for discovering the Titanic and he's actually contacted and contracted by the Navy to explore this wreck site. And this kind of interweaves with his discovery of the Titanic. Along with inspecting the Thresher, Ballard is tasked with exploring another nuclear submarine site of the USS Scorpion. Ballard is ultimately able to establish that there's very limited nuclear contamination at the wreck sites for both submarines. Additionally, he was able to map the wreck sites and provide photographic evidence of the vessels. Ballard is then able to use Navy resources in his search for the Titanic. So it was very much a, hey, you're talented. We need your help. And if you help us, we'll let you use some of our resources to do the thing you want to do. Mm -hmm. That's it also helps the Navy save face a little bit when dealing with the Russians and the media, when they can have this guy who's outwardly saying, yeah, I'm looking for the Titanic when he's actually <laughs> doing research on 
submarine sites. Sneaky, sneaky. Yeah, it definitely was a little bit of a face-saving maneuver. But, I mean, obviously, if you're Robert Ballard, do you want the U.S. Navy's help? Sure, you'll do it. Also, I was just going to comment about the nuclear contamination threat from these. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know a lot about it. I'm about the furthest thing from a scientist as you can get. But I was interested to see about them sort of discovering that the you know potential contamination from this is fairly limited. Right. And I... I believe, and I could be totally wrong here, I believe that, is that just because water is a pretty good insulator against radiation? Or uh, That would make sense. I mean, I know in like nuclear power plants that the, the rods and stuff go into pools and that does insulate a lot of the yeah. radiation. Honestly, most of my radiation knowledge comes from the Chernobyl miniseries and the Fallout video game series, so I don't know how accurate either one of those are. We are still wearing the hats. <laughs> All right, so in summing up his thoughts on Thresher, or the Thresher disaster, Admiral Heyman Rickover stated, I believe the loss of the Thresher should not be viewed solely as the result of a failure of a specific braze weld system or component, but rather should be considered a consequence of the philosophy of design, construction, and inspection that was permitted in our naval shipbuilding programs. I think that it is important that we reevaluate our present practices wherein the desire to make advancements, we may have forsaken the fundamentals of good engineering. So basically he's saying, yeah, that it, even if it was the braze that failed, it's, it's not, that's not the problem. The problem is that there's a system in place. That's not correcting these things. That's not making best practice decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't blame the weld for failing when that, or you can't blame the braze for failing when that braze should have never been used. Of course it's going to fail. Right. The person who's, applying that that braze is not the one who decided to put it there right right it's more of a systemic issue Mm -hmm. um so kind of carrying on in that thought a lasting result of the thresher incident is the u.s navy's subsafe program and this program um it brings in a more rigorous design and construction um into place for designing these ships and it also there's far more safety inspections during construction. They're actually checking things and assuming instead of assuming that things are going well, you know, they're evaluating things as it's being built rather than after it's too late to fix it. So kind of looking at some numbers here from 1915 to 1963, the Navy had 16 submarines lost to non-combat related incidents. That's not good. That's a lot of subs Yeah. to non-combat issues. This is actually something I'd like to look up. I I don't think we, I don't think either of us, has this information right now, I'd be interested to compare that to uh, more standard surface vessels in terms yeah. of non-combat loss uh, in that same time frame. That actually would be an interesting little bit of data. The only sub lost after 1963, which is when the subsafe program was implemented, was the USS Scorpion, which we mentioned above. Uh, it's important to note that the Scorpion was not certified as subsafe at the time of its loss. It was actually grandfathered in. What do we know about that? <laughs> it's bad. Stop it's bad, grandfathering it's bad, things in. It's bad to grandfather stuff in. Just make just the, make changes. To to quote Mike Tomlin, the standard is the standard. Yes. Finally, we have to discuss the human impact of the loss of the Thresher. Uh, there was a total of 129 men aboard the vessel, and that number is higher than its normal crew due to the civilian contractors that I discussed earlier. There were 17 civilians on board the vessel. Since the vessel had been newly refitted, they were on there to test, fix issues, you know, kind of work as a liaison with the crew back to their companies and 
um, you know, make sure that things are functioning the way they're supposed to. But I mean, obviously they're just as much a part of this incident as the actual crew since they were on board the vessel when this happened. Right. Um, there's various memorials to the crew, um, that were lost. And that includes the chapel at Portsmouth Navy Yard is now named the Thresher Memorial Chapel. The Eureka, Missouri post office actually has a monument. There is a Robert E. Stanell Memorial Park in Salisbury, Massachusetts, and it's named after a sonarman, uh, first class Stanell that was on board the vessel. Uh, I thought one of these was interesting. The, the next one's interesting. It's a 129-foot flagpole in Kittery uh, Memorial Circle in mm-hmm. Kittery, Maine. So that's the port that the vessel actually left before it went on this test dive. But it's also kind of cool. They did a the 129-foot flagpole, which is one foot for each person on board the vessel. It's kind of a, a, a good memorial, I feel like. It's very representat- representative of what was going on. Mm-hmm. And then finally, actually very recently, uh, there's a memorial dedicated at Arlington National Cemetery on September 26th, 2019. So that's kind of cool. Um, there have been some individual memorials at Arlington, but there had not been like one central memorial. So I think it, it is nice that the crew is getting that recognition and that just the disaster itself is being recognized. Uh, it's kind of a pivotal moment in the Navy's uh, submarine program, and it does definitely deserve to be commemorated and remembered because it is such an important event that it brought in the subsafe program. And, you know, it has been revolutionary for submarine safety in the U S Navy. We don't have incidents like the Kursk or something like that, that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, have plagued other navies. Right. Uh, So with that, I'll kind of hand it over to you for your final thoughts. Yeah. uh, I was, uh, did a little bit of database research for, for this uh, finding to see what what's some of the sort of scholarship about this uh, in things like academic journals and came across a journal article called inside the thresher disaster by Philip Callahan. Mm-hmm. And one of the focuses of this uh, article was about the, the sort of the technological aspects and sort of where things were at the time. Um, the idea that this is a, this is a pretty interesting time when it comes to technology, specifically military technology. We have a lot of new stuff, and we're not quite sure what it's capable of. Right. He's talking about these these uh, these pretty new nuclear-powered submarines. Quote, Commanding officers of the nuclear-propelled submarines got into the habit of operating their boats with negative trim. They knew that no matter how much ballast their submarines had, the force of nuclear power would drive them back to the surface. Unless your reactor is shut down. Exactly. And that really highlights the idea we always stress is that, like, one thing typically leads to another. Um, You know, either multiple things fail at once um, or the failure of one small thing causes a big important thing to fail. I don't know. It it reminded me of so much that you read in history of, you know, well, we have this thing, so nothing else really matters. Like that, uh, the I think it's Hilaire Belloc, the... Uh, whatever happens, we've got the Maxim gun, and they have not. Right, um, right. The, the idea that you're, you're so reliant on a piece of technology, and it's going to work most of the time and get you out of tight situations, but uh, sometimes it's going to fail. And you, right. you, you need to be aware of other factors as well. You know, on a positive note, I think something to take from this, it's kind of the only positive you can take from this story, is that subsafe program that you, you know, talked about quite a bit. Like you said, we haven't lost a subsafe certified ship since that was implemented. And also I was really actually impressed with the speed that that was implemented. 
Uh, right. Yeah. It was implemented, I think, in December of 1963, which I, I think for any government endeavor is just lightning fast that you would be able to do something in the same calendar year. Especially thing- something that's so effective. It's not yeah, like, like just threw something out there to have it. Exactly. It you know seems you know that this this was implemented quickly and effectively. I guess from a cynical perspective, you could you could almost ask, well, if you're able to do this so quickly and effectively, why wasn't it in place first? But I think that raises you know the the ultimate importance of the story and what happened. The prevailing notion in a lot of the literature about this really does seem to be on the sort of sacrifice aspect of this. Um, obviously, it's a tragedy, but then uh, after that has happened, really the only thing you can do is is what can we learn from it and what can we take from it? Mm-hmm. And what can we change? Uh, to quote again from uh, from that Callahan piece, perhaps the best way to remember the boat and her crew is to remind ourselves of the Navy's outstanding track record in submarine safety. Lessons learned from the Thresher disaster have not been forgotten. Yeah, I think that's right. To paraphrase Coleridge, we come out of this as sadder and wiser men. Um, yeah, I think that you definitely see that. I think one thing you have to consider talk, when talking about this is kind of the time that it happens and what the political climate is in the United States. I mean, this is the height of the Cold War. So mm-hmm. obviously, if you have new technology, you want to get it out there to compete with the Russians because you you know that the Russians are just over the over the horizon with something bigger and scarier and you need something to combat that. I mean, that's, that's can't be like avoided. That's the climate that we're in. Mm-hmm. That probably does encourage you to take some risks that you wouldn't otherwise take. Like if you think that there's Russian missile subs off the coast of Florida, <laughs> you want to counter to that. So you may not be as picky about safety regulations. And ultimately this probably provided that the reset that the Navy needed to focus on um, safety instead of just getting something out there. Mm-hmm. And that's I think that's the other thing is, you know, we we talk overwhelmingly on, on this show about, you know, civilian vessels. Um, and that is something I think to, to keep in mind that, that comes up a lot in, in the um, in the research and the readings. It's always hard to chalk up one of these things as just this isn't a normal part of the job um, in any sense. But at the same time, you, you're dealing with a military vessel. The risk is a little bit more of a present factor. And like you said, it, it's a situation where you're building an attack submarine something is probably going to fall by the wayside in terms of safety, um, just by nature of, of what this ship is intended for. Yeah. I mean, there's just also more inherent danger in being a submariner. I right. mean, it it's a dangerous thing. It's more dangerous than being on a cargo vessel, but that doesn't mean that you should, that there should be like uncalculated risk. Like mm-hmm. I think you, everything you're doing should be with the idea that I'm doing a dangerous thing, but I'm doing it as safely as I can. Right. Yeah, I think that is the legacy of this one. I, I liked doing this one. It was a different story. And I, I feel like we say that every week, like, oh, this one's a different one. This one's kind of different. But this one truly is. It's, you have like a real lesson that um, is clearly brought to an organization after this and clearly seems to be something that they learned. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have anything else to add uh, to it. Do you? Um, I think that's everything. In terms of uh, sources and such. I will share a couple of those on our uh, on our uh, show notes that we share on Buzzsprout. Um, so you'll be able to to check out some of the uh, helpful links and stuff. I'll I'll share the link that I used to learn about welding and brazing. There's an interesting link I found, uh, a pretty good explanation of just general uh, how submarine ballast systems work. I had to learn a little bit about that. 
Um, and then also a little bit extra on Patreon. There's a couple of journal articles I want to share. Um, there's really no good way to share them in the show notes. So I'm just going to put those uh, in PDF form on Patreon. So for those interested, uh, those Patreon subscribers, you'll be able to access those and uh, take a look at some of the stuff. And then, I mean, in terms of big picture stuff, the the documents that they're slowly releasing due to that Freedom of Information Act uh, request, those are sort of being fed out uh, sort of piecemeal. Uh, they'll release, you know, a set of documents every few months. Uh, they, I think the most recent one I saw was in like April. They're, I mean, they're pretty dry for the most part. I, I read not not too much of them, but they're there. They're available. Uh, just like a quick Google search for, uh, you know, Thresher document release and, and you'll be able to find them. But I will also share a link to those uh, in the show notes as well. Okay, cool. That sounds good. Um, I really appreciate everybody listening. Um, I, it's been an enjoyable one to do. I'm, I'm glad we did it. It's uh, it's good. Uh, I think what next week is a is a you episode. So who knows what you've got cooking for us? But uh, I look forward to finding out. And I definitely appreciate everybody listening. And hope everybody has a great week. One final note I have to throw in here: uh, bonus episode will be coming out uh, in the next few days on uh, on Patreon for those at the the five dollar level. Yeah. Yep. Five dollars. Um, so we'll have something new. Uh, and interesting coming for you in that bonus episode. So keep an eye out for that. With with a special guest. Special guest. Uh, a new special guest. Um, we, uh, that'll be our first guest host, I think. Well, <laughs> yeah. I know. I know for sure it will. Um, yeah, so there's uh, stuff to look forward to. Yeah, sounds good. I appreciate everybody listening and hope you have a great week.